0: The contradictions produced by this Cold War world split into a capitalist camp and a socialist one, a colonial north and a colonized south, may seem to belong to a long-lost world. Having said that, Césaire's questions regarding the gap between ideology and political practice the theorization of the struggle in the colonies, as well as the fraught politics of internationalist solidarity between leftists in the metropoles and revolutionaries in the peripheries are re-emerging today in the wake of the Arab revolutions. Nowhere are they more salient than in the case of the political and moral failure of white segments of the anti-imperialist left in the metropoles, who have either bluntly supported Assad for his quote-unquote anti-imperialism and quote-unquote secularism, or withheld their solidarity from the Syrian struggle for emancipation from a regime of mass murder. Hello everyone and as we say on my homeland, may you live long and prosper. This is The Fire These Times and I am your host, Joey. Patreon supporters get early access to all episodes including this one in exchange for helping turn this project into a full time job. If you want to help out, please head out to patreon.com slash fire these times and join the amazing community making this project possible. So today's guest is Fadi by he is the author of the words that I started this podcast with that were part of an essay that he's written called Forsaking the Scene Revolution an anti-imperialist handbook he also has another essay called critical theory in a minor key to take stock of this scene revolution you can find the links to both essays in the description so of course we primarily spoke about those two essays and as with every episode we went beyond them as well so that's it for me folks thank you for listening and i hope you enjoy this episode
1: Thanks, Joey, for having me uh, on your podcast. Again, I was uh, there a couple of years ago to talk about my first book. Uh, My name is Fadi Bardawil. I'm an anthropologist by training, and I've been uh, doing some work for a couple of decades on uh, the leftist tradition in the Arab world. I've done some work on its aesthetic dimensions, uh, an MA thesis on Ziyad Rahbani and politically committed art maybe a couple of decades ago. And after that, I've done work on the Lebanese and Arab New Left that emerged in the 1960s out of uh, Arab nationalism. And overall, uh, my work revolves around questions of uh, thinking about critical theory, post-colonial theory, intellectual history, and political anthropology. What I'm really after is uh, interrogating traditions that had to do with... Uh, emancipation in the Arab world, as well as uh, looking at practices of uh, political commitment and um, different modalities of public intervention. I currently teach contemporary Arab cultures
0: at uh, Duke University. Thanks again. Thanks for coming uh, again we'll be primarily talking about a couple of essays that you've written and I have the titles here so I'm gonna and obviously everything we talk about I will include in the description so the essays are the anti-imperialist and anti-imperialist quotation guide to forsaking the scene revolution which you've written for Jamuria and the other one is called Critical Theory in a Minor Key to Take Stock of the Syrian Revolution. And so we'll kind of, we'll talk about both and beyond as well. So let's just start from the start as I always do. Can you, can you talk to us a bit about those essays and broadly as well, how did you start thinking about the Syrian Revolution and why did you write those two pieces? Uh,
1: right, thank you. So, uh, you know, I, I grew up, I was, I grew up in Lebanon, during uh, the civil war from 19 that you know started in 1975 and ended in the last quarter of 1990 so the assad regime was one of the major regional players in in Lebanon during the war and after the war when uh, the Syrian assadist army uh, remained and the in the country after the Taif accord in 1990 and that regime Had was really the 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 regime that was uh, not only present militarily, but also uh, sort of running running the show politically. And to say that is to say that the question of uh, the the question of Syria and the question of Lebanon is a you know historically very very entangled and intimate one, and for uh, someone of my generation who, uh, who grew up and witnessed, you know, firsthand the regime in action in one's, you know, in one's neighborhood, in one's backyard, to be interested in the Syrian revolution and to be interested in uh, the discourses around it, particularly the discourses of people who uh, very early on, very, very early on, like in the first months or so, and two eleven started uh, started dismissing it was uh, was something I I gravitated towards, particularly that I also worked on the Lebanese and the Arab left. So I started to uh, to follow, you know, in the beginning, particularly certain Lebanese discourses. Uh, I remember very early on in April 2011 uh, articles written. Uh, by supporters of the now uh, President-General Michel Aoun, articles written that are dismissing the revolution by bringing, again, very early on, uh, forward the question that those who are basically engaged in these practices are Sunni fundamentalists. And this is, uh, you know, a month after after the big, massive demonstrations, and and I started being interested in seeing how some of these factions who are, you know, allied with the Syrian regime, and or putting forth notions about uh, what in Arabic was called halal a m basically an alliance of minorities, starting very early on to spin discourses uh, that sort of bring back specters of sort of Islamophobic discourses, particularly against the Sunni Sunni majority. So so this is, you know, a sort of a thumbnail sketch of, of, you know, how I came to be interested in basically following what was happening in Syria, but also following the sort of discourses that were spun around it.
0: Thanks for that. Uh, this is something that we share in common for sure. Also, as someone who grew up in Lebanon and um i don't remember if i actually brought it up last time we spoke but i've all i've been for the past now seven eight even nine years i would say very um concerned because i wasn't that active around 2011 i started in 2013 or so with their reactions to the syrian revolution uprising and then subsequent um, civil war international war crackdowns all of those other terms that we can use all of which are partially accurate um and in lebanon Obviously, in, uh, during the uprising of 2019, we saw chants from Syria being reutilized in Lebanon. But at the same time, we didn't see a Syrian presence. There were Syrians among us, but they weren't really allowed to be very visible. So there was this very Lebanese thing happening in many ways where, on the one hand, we were calling for an uprising, for a revolution, for anti-sectarianism and all of that. On the other hand, we still have all of, we still had, and in many ways still do, uh, those reservations, and here I'm putting that word in quotation uh, towards Syrians in Lebanon, and it's that that led me to write an essay with a Syrian friend uh, for Jumhuri as well, actually, called Syrian Melancholy in the in the Lebanese Revolution or something along those lines. In your essay, uh, the one for Jumhuri, the the one that says like the anti-imperialist quote-unquote guide uh, to forsaking the Syrian Revolution. You mentioned Aimé Césaire, who is this uh, philosopher who passed away some years ago. Can you sort of walk us through um, what did you mean by Emile Césaire's ghosts uh, in the context of the Syrian revolution? There's a quote that you used at the very beginning of the essay, which I will just read. The dead, the tortured, the executed, no, neither posthumous rehabilitations, no national funerals, no official speeches can overcome them these are not the kinds of ghosts that one can ward off with a mechanical phrase uh end quote uh, walk us through this a bit if that's okay thank you
1: yeah i mean i uh, mean was a you know pr- prolific uh thinker and you know an artist and i use uh his i draw on and you know and use with great profit the letter of resi- his letter of resignation from the French Communist Party that he addressed to uh, Maurice Torres, who was then the Secretary General of the French Communist Party. That quote that you uh, read was written by Césaire in the context of Stalinism, the Stalinist crimes. Now, that letter, which, uh, you know, I encourage, you know, our, our listeners to to read because I derived great profit from it that reading that letter for me in the context of the of the Syrian revolution and talking about Caesar's ghosts did many things to you know and at the very, very general level, before I go into the specifics of Caesar's argument and what I think is helpful about them at the very, very general level. What I've been invested in is to actually go back and revisit certain traditions of the left, to say that there are kernels in these traditions that can be activated that will basically help us in our present. Every present, every conjuncture has its own singularity. Yet, there are certain questions that we face in our present that earlier generations of militants and thinkers on the left have faced. And it's, uh, I think, beneficial to revisit these uh, works and these traditions for, for, you know, A, so that they are not only appropriated by, you know, certain actors or thinkers. And that let's say, you know, are pro-Assadists. And therefore, you have to say that in order to, you know, in order to resist these thinkers, you have to do it from a position which is outside the leftist tradition. So it's a way of saying that there is in that tradition a fertile ground to actually formulate arguments that can be in support of the positions that you are taking. And you are not leaving behind that, that whole tradition. And entirely as one that is barren, that doesn't have any sort of fruits to offer you. But two, in the case of this uh, very, very poignant and you know thoughtful letter by Césaire, he makes three points, which I think are crucial to sort of, so sort to of speak, bring back to the table when it comes to discussing the Syrian revolution. In, in discussing the crimes of Stalinism, uh, he was basically alerting his readers to how certain segments of the left either turned a, blind, turned a blind eye to these crimes, like disavowed them, or even worse, sort of, you know, justified them. And by which he was, by which he meant that, you know, that there's, it was a way for, I think, you know, the way I read him, is that it's a way for him to tell us, that there is a particular uh, ethical bankruptcy when you think that crimes only happen in the ideological camp that opposes you and you sort of disavow that crimes that happen in your in your camp the second important point that cesaire makes in that piece is that he makes the point that in that metropolitan communists in in france so to speak rank their their class struggle as more important and more primordial than anti-colonial struggle in the peripheries so there is always the idea of so to speak a main contradiction that is dictated by the metropole so we set the agenda and your struggles your you know your practices are are secondary to ours and this is a point that I think you brought up in one in a few of the articles you've written about the Syrian revolution itself, like who's setting the agenda, you know, what is the question that we're asking, and uh, the third point, which is related to the second one, that he really sort of like mentions briefly but like very very sort of like incisively, is the question of paternalism, where he says that you know. where he sort of invites his readers to sort of move away from just thinking that, you know, there's a big difference between the left and the right or the communists and the colonialists in his case. Because he says that at some point they both share a paternalism. And here he's he's basically telling us that it's not all about the beliefs, the ideologies you have. There's particular attitudes, particu- a particular ethos that one could share. And I thought that this... This paternalism of like, let me tell you, you know, what things are about or let me tell you what is good for you to do is something which, again, resonated with me in, you know, when I was basically reviewing all this, all this literature and all these discourses and trying to sort of like analyze them. So the question of the crimes in your camp, the question of all, that's a question of ranking what struggle is more primor- you know, more important, more crucial, more primordial than the other, and the question of paternalism. The question of paternalism, incidentally, is is a question that uh, Yasin al-Saleh raised in an article for Jumhuriya as well when he was uh, discussing solidarity. Uh, so, so that the risks of solidarity slipping into some kind of met- metropolitan paternalism as well. So this is why I thought that these these are sort of Caesar's ghosts that sort of come back. These are, you know, Caesar's ghosts that come back to haunt us in a very different conjuncture, not the conjuncture of Stalinism and anti-colonial struggle, but the conjuncture of the Syrian revolution and the Arab revolutions more generally, where you have mass movements of emancipations against the authoritarian, and in the case of Syria, you know, mass murderous regimes that, Reinherited inherited in the wake of you know, national liberation
0: mm. yeah I, I also be, even before you mentioned Yassin I immediately thought of this um, he was part of this film where he basically he was saying that they in which case he was talking about the western left broadly speaking but I think he was specifically referring to Slavoj Zizek as well at some point and I forgot the context but it was something along those lines he said like they do not see us they, they simply do not see us they do, they do not see our suffering they do not see and this is, this is, they do not see us is what really uh, stuck with me. And it's been that question that I, I, if I, if I were to think of a sentence that really um, defines a lot of my interest, you might say, a lot of my focus these past few years has been like asking the question of why and how even they do not see us. Like what, what is, who is the they, who is the us, what is the seeing, all of that stuff. This is part of what I'm trying to get at. And it sort of segues well into the next question I had for you, which is you, you have this uh, focus as well of like, on the one hand, you have the uh, met, um, me, leftists in the metropoles, as you call them, and then the peripheries. And I was wondering if you can sort of talk to us a bit more about, uh, so I'm going to quote you first. So you wrote in, in that uh, 2016 piece, the fraught politics of internationalist solidarity between leftists in the metropoles and revolutionaries in the peripheries are re-emerging today in the wake of the Arab revolutions. Um, as I uh, sent you before as well, I wasn't aware of this essay when I wrote um, a piece for Lausanne, which is this decolonial left uh, Hong Kong um, uh, oriented um, outlet. And now a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of whose members have actually since gone into exile, especially since 2019 and the subsequent crackdowns. And I had written this blog post. It was like a, a on my private blog. I shared it on Twitter, and a number of people shared it. And among them were these uh, Hong Kong um, now uh, Hong Kongers, a number of whom are our friends. And they uh, reached out and asked me if they if I could republish it on their website with some notification basically, because my the, the tone was different and stuff. And this is this was one of many, and it's an ongoing process, and it's going to continue for sure. These kinds of conversations and parallels that I'm seeing between, the specifics aren't necessarily the same. So like the, the context in Hong Kong is different than the context in Syria, different than the context in Bosnia, obviously and in other uh, contexts as well. Yeah, The details are never the same, but there's a sort of sentiment of being abandoned or a sentiment of being um, rejected, demonized, silenced, all of those other terms that we want to use, all of, all of the above for that matter at the same time sometimes. Uh, can you talk to us a bit about uh, this um, tension, if that's the correct term, between leftists in the metropolis, as you call them, and the 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 uh, revolutionaries in the peripheries? I mean, you know, part.
1: It's a again, it's a very big question, but part of my critique of certain segments of the of the left, who were. To go back to what you mentioned about the politics of representation, you know, who were e- who were either straightforward Assad apologists, or in a more, in a, you know, or those who sort of subscribe to a certain kind of there are two narratives to this story and both narratives have some problems in them. Let's weigh the pros and cons. Because there's different varieties, not everyone is in the same bag. Or, for, or those who insisted on casting the Syrian revolution as a tragedy that has no author Or those who used strategies, whether consciously or not, to foreclose the political dimension of the uprising by representing Syrians as, you know, either Sunni fundamentalist, you know, let's use the word like terrorists, or vengeful sectarians, or victims to be saved. You know, And in that case, the humanitarian, the sectarian, and the Muslim fundamentalists are not figures that you can extend solidarity to or figures that are deemed to be revolutionary subjects or part of a politics of emancipation. So the question that you raised then and, and that, Yassin Yasin Has Saleh uh, has been raising for for years now about the politics of representation was was key here. And I was less interested in arguing with particular individuals or particular groups, but and their motives, but more interested in really analyzing the undergirding discourses that were that were used. And these were some of them that I mentioned to you now, you know. You know the 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 two narratives, for example, one. I mean, in in sort of trying to to think through it, it was very helpful for me to read uh, the work of a Palestinian American anthropologist called Amal Pshara, who uh, who wrote a book on how the U.S. media uh, represents the Palestinian struggle, called backstories. And in that book, she has a notion. Where she's, which she calls balanced objectivity, where she says that in the U.S. media, that there's a subscription to a particular notion of you need to represent both sides and you need to give equal time to both sides and you need to realize that there are two narratives. And the problem with balanced objectivity in the Palestine context for her was that, A, it sort of homogenizes both camps, but B, more importantly, it erases the power differential between these two camps. It makes the Israelis and the Palestinians like on equal footing, and C, it creates an artificial public sphere as if these people are actually having a conversation in a coffee shop together while someone is basically bombing the other from the you know from the skies. So, so I saw that this notion of balanced objectivity that Bishara, Bishara talks about when it comes to uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict was sometimes deployed by some, you know, some people on the left. Like, let's let's see both sides, let's take a look at them. And I'm, again, I'm talking about more, not about the straightforward apologists, I'm talking about very different kind of logics, but these logics, these kinds of arguments erase the power imbalance, you know, create a sort of like false equivalence between both sides. A false equivalence which is, you know, which was never there, you know, with a, a mass murderous regime with air power and Basically, the revolutionaries on on the ground. Uh, so these are some of the arguments, and that that I sort of try to work with. But there's a force, you know. There's a force thing. So there's the straightforward apologists who use, you know, co- either arguments about like Islamophobia, etc., uphold Assad as, as like a secular leader or a, a a great anti-imperialist leader, and and then there's the sort of false equivalence notes, and then there's the other figures. I mean, the other fi- the other tropes that are that foreclose the political dimension of the struggle through looking at it only through the lens of sectarianism, or only through the humanitarian lens, or only through that lens. But there's also something that has to do with, I think, um, local internal politics. So you know, part of the peculiarity of a place like the United States, is that, you know, it's an empire. So to be a dissident in the U.S., to be an oppositional, you know, an oppositional member of that society, whether you're American or not, to be a dissident is to, in a way, oppose your government's policies. But because it's an empire, domestic politics and domestic oppositional politics become you know, global global politics, de facto. So over here, there is, I think, a particular conundrum, which is, you know, part, particular to the US, which is how being opposed to your government may sort of like, on domestic issues, which are foreign affairs issues, because you are part of this society, then may lead you, to a particular form of what I think you called in one of your articles, I think, uh, anti-imperial essentialism, or something like that, mm-hmm. where, where in a way your 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 critical domestic politics become the lens through which you see the rest of the world, as opposed to if you are a proper leftist, a kind of internationalist lens where you see where is power, who are people struggling struggling against power. So I mean, the crude version of this you know the crude version of this is like the enemy of my enemy is my friend but but a more sophisticated version of this would be that you know you have you are you are on the good side of history and to be on the good side of the history is to be you know to oppose what your government has done specifically when your government has done you know horrific things in terms of invading other countries participating in coups d'etats you know Putting countries under sanctions, economic sanctions. So it's not that there is no history to back that up, but when that becomes that, when your lens becomes that de facto lens, in a way, you sort of re-inscribe your own domestic politics and your own lens and your own your own sense of well-being as not being entangled, as not being complicit in that, and that leads to again either the invisibility of other struggle for emancipation or disavowing them or justifying the regimes that are basically crushing them so there's it's a very complex stories and i think for me it's much more important to work on the level of how these logics are deployed and how the how the positionalities of people sort of impact the kind of things they do than to sort of focus on a particular individual or a you know or a twitter feed or something like that that's a yeah. long answer
0: yeah no i thanks for that um it actually it's it's um it's something that is something of a critique that i would have towards some of my own past writing there was definitely a a focus on individuals usually not names but like individual groups at the very least and at the time it did feel urgent so like for for whatever that's worth to do so but i a bosnian um, friend uh, adnan delalic he he also he's very uh, he thinks a lot about syria as well and obviously being bosnian himself given the given what happened in the 90s and what's ongoing now for that matter we, we actually don't know what's going to happen in in, in bosnia we'll uh, hopefully we'll see but he's the one who kind of pointed out that it matters more it should matter more to focus on the wider trends or the wider spaces that allow, um, let me put it this way, rather than focusing only on what we what we sometimes see, see on the internet, like they're called the tankies, like authoritarians on the left. And on the left, you know, some people would say they're not really the leftists, but we'll put that debate aside for a sec. Um rather than focus on that it's like what allows what is the mainstream equivalent of that because he he has a very interesting way of actually drawing comparisons between the outright denials as as you might say in the in the in the case of CIA would be like the asset apologists or straight up apologists or you know maybe downplaying what he's doing or what have you, what he's been doing what he's still doing uh, or what have you but you would also have all of those other factors that for example as you mentioned there could, in the case of Syria, there could be some um, engagement and I'm putting, I'm using that term very loosely with Syrians, but only through the lens of, uh, you know, they are refugees and they need our help kind of thing, just like a humanitarian lens. And we see that we saw the same in, well, for me, I think of London a lot, like I, I, I saw the same types of groups uh Kind of established figures or established groups on the left in the UK or on the British left simultaneously uh, downplay the horrors of the Assad regime or uh, denying, in you know, outright denying them or what have you. Uh, sometimes in the name of uh, cold quote unquote pragmatism, the, the whole thing, as you said, while well, he's the secular leader, blah, 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 and sometimes uh, other uh, reasons. And at the same time saying, well, we need to be uh, pro-refugees, we need to welcome, you know, refugees are welcome here as the chant goes and so on and so forth. And those two could happen simultaneously, despite what to me sounds like a contradiction, but we live in a world of contradictions, so it shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, Can you you talk a bit about your approach? Because I feel like you, you definitely did that, even in your first essay, the one I read first about this kind of this tension, and again, I'm using the term tension, or the relationship maybe between trying to balance, or let me put it this way. Can you talk a bit about your approach to this question of how to balance focusing, quote unquote, too much on individuals with the need to critique wider structures? Like why why do you do the latter rather than doing too much of the former?
1: Right, because, I mean, uh, the short answer is because by following what were like these discourses and these appearances, uh, I kind of thought a bit like a social scientist, which was my training. I'm like, I see patterns, you know, and I, I really saw patterns that different people repeat, you know, one, one pattern was like importing wholesale uh, the anti-war movement rhetoric as if Syria was Iraq in 2003. You know, I remember this uh, uh, demonstration in the first two years of the revolution in Chicago, and there was this uh, uh, person demonstrating with a banner that had written on it, you know, U.S. and Israel, hands off Syria. And, And it struck me, you know, and I'm like, I don't know what that individual's motives are. But they took the time to like handwrite a banner, which says, you know, and so very similar banners even to the ones that we witnessed in, you know, February two thousand and three, around that time before the invasion of Iraq. So, um, so I realized that there are patterns, regardless of the motives of people that I cannot detect. You know, some people again that you know are very clear in the you know in the fact of being Assad apologists, but there are some people who really i can't access what motivates them but i can see what kind of discourses they are deploying that that basically resurrect certain tropes certain themes which have strong inter- ideological inter- 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 interpolative power on the left you know like the anti war one, for example, another another one which I thought was repeated was this resurrection resurrection of like McCarthy. Like saying, "Oh, there's a McCarthy campaign on Twitter, or there's a McCarthy campaign on social media," and you know, when you McCarthyism, people were put in jail, people lost their jobs, people were persecuted by a state. So to think to to sort of like borrow to borrow that sort of expression, which has such a heavy sort of like affective ideological memory load and to deploy it for, you know, social media sort of like threads or conversations is something that does a particular ideological effect. That's so. So these patterns... I started noticing and that's why I wanted to go to to the structure. You know a, a third a third pattern is you know what I call deflecting discourse which people refer to as like what about. You know you so you talk about the Syrian Revo- what aboutism you talk about Syrian revolution and and then you know people are asking you why aren't you talking about another place in the Arab world that is not you know in the same game, like Yemen, or why don't you talk about what Saudi Arabia is doing, or what? So, so you deflect discourse. So I started really doing a tally of these things, in which I was less interested in, and also less capable of accessing people's motives, but more, um, I could, I could access at least I could get a sense of the performative powers of these discourses, the affective charge they hold, their ideological power of interpolation, things that are stamped in people's memories, like the Iraq invasion from a decade earlier, McCarthy in the history of the left, things like that. So that's, that's the answer, really. Seeing these patterns and not being able to, you know, and not being interested and not being able to access motives on the one hand, but also seeing things repeating themselves. So I think one should tackle these logics to be able to sort of undo their grip or provide another and provide another, basically, a narrative of the event.
0: Yeah, no, that makes sense. And rhetorically, I I can think of the slogan, stop the war, um, which is, of course, also the name of a group in the UK. As like, just if you think of just that sentence alone, like stop the war, it it says a lot of things. A, it says that there is a single war. Two, it says that stop is somehow in our hands, our here being in the West or the, you know, the UK, the, the US. And um, three, it's sort of, I don't know how to say this, but in, in many ways it erases the fact that a war has been ongoing prior to writing that sign. That's how I'm trying to picture it here. Maybe I didn't express it well. Because in another thing that also does, I think for, and I remember having a conversation to that effect with a Syrian friend, a couple of them actually, it 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 sort of tells them, tells those it, it sort of doesn't have them in mind. That sign doesn't have them in mind. Like they're they are rendered abstract, as one of them told me. Like they don't actually erase again, like this whole question of being erased. They don't see us to use Yassin's Yasin's words, Yasin Hastara's words. But I do see the value in what I definitely and I agree with you, I do see the value in rather than looking at that, what that individual might be thinking because uh, that individual could be part of the protest and was handed that sign. So, like, even the individual motives don't matter as much. And we've seen that happen because, especially in London, you have these very, like, well-established signs in many ways that are just recycled, uh, one might say, depending on the on the context. So, this is something that I'm... Um, yeah, it is true that in 2015, 2016, 2017, around that time, uh, up until more or less the fall of Aleppo in 2016, more or less the end of 2016, around that time, I would say, we saw a lot of these protests that, to use a common term, triggered a number of of emotions in me and in some of my friends that were were emotions of of hurt, of anger, of of yeah, all of outrage in many ways. And what they also did, and this is something that I mentioned a number of times, and I had a conversation actually to that effect with another Hong Konger, uh, Sharon Yam, uh, I think it was last year, uh, I had her on a second time a few weeks ago. But in our first conversation, we were talking about the emotional cause of this information. And one thing that is still, I think, misunderstood, it's not a matter of just, oh, this is wrong, here is why this is wrong it's more that the time required, whether literally or emotionally, like the emotional labor required to debunk this or what have you, is often is always greater than the effort required to put out a false statement. And this is the whole uh, uh, bullshit asymmetry effect, I think it's called on the internet. Like basically false news uh, spreads much, much faster than any any, of the, any attempts to correct it and so on. And this is, there's a number of reasons for this. Some of it is the structure of social media, some of it is older uh, problems and so on. If it's okay to kind of go back a bit to a because I'm very interested in looking at the thoughts of someone like him, uh, having such a... And I'm still very much in the beginnings, I would say, of exploring his, his, his work. Uh, so I, in no way am I would I describe myself as like confident in, in understanding everything he had to say, or at least most of what he had to say. But this notion of uh, hauntings is something that I do look at in the context of Lebanon. I, I look at hauntings, specifically in my thesis, or on the post-war, and I put post-war in quotation when I use it in Lebanon, i.e. Uh, they disappeared as al-Maf'udin, as we would call them. And I look not just at what those those people who were forcibly disappeared what do they represent in quote-unquote post-war Lebanon but what about their loved ones because their loved ones are part of the post-war like quite literally as in many of them are still alive but they're at the same time also rejected from that post-war because their loved ones were erased and there are a number of reasons for that. I'm wondering if you can talk to us or explore uh, this notion of ghosts like why did you think of the term ghosts and what do you think these ghosts and whether it's singular or plural has or have to tell us to in this conversation about those, the failures, we might say, or limitations or whatnot, this lack of internationalism, maybe you might say?
1: You know, to be, to be honest with you, when I was, uh, I didn't dwell on the matter and sort of conceptualize it. Further than what I told you in terms of the three points of thinking, mm. of thinking about sort of the return, the return of these sort of basically tropes of disavowing crimes in your own ideological camp, reinscribing the metropole's political priority as first and foremost, you know, what matters. Mm which is evidenced in that sign I told you, like, you know, U.S. and Israel, hands off Syria, as if it's a U.S. and Israeli affair. And also the question, the very important question, that ideological beliefs are not the beginning and the end of everything. There are certain dispositions, certain attitudes, certain ethoses, specifically the question of paternalism that can cut across ideological divides so i in that you know in that in that sense i was trying to to say that there's something there's something very new and very singular about how these discourses that are spun to erase the Syrian revolution are you know, happen are happening like the modes they're happening in, or the platforms they're using to sort of like initiate themselves, but also to say that from the point of view of the Syrians, uh, that struggle f- against invisibility, that struggle against the erasure of the crimes committed against them, and that feeling of paternalism that can come from friend or foe is something that has been experienced in the past by some anti-colonial thinkers uh, like Césaire. And there is there is value in thinking about that. I do not think that it's hard for me to make like a sort of like a gross sweeping historical generalization. Like, you know, the left, the left is always plagued by that or, or these are similar things. So for me it was a very much a strate- like invoking Caesarare's go was a a, quote, was a strategic intervention to bring back a memory of certain anti-colonial struggles that could actually be very significant and helpful in these post-colonial anti-authoritarian struggles so in a way it was it's a way of connecting certain anti-colonial struggles with the struggles of the Arab revolutions and and basically the emancipations, as opposed to a certain line of the left uh, that I discuss in in the second piece, which basically uh, is critical of the Arab revolutions because they do not have supposedly the anti-imperialist and the sort of uh, thick social social justice agenda of the revolutions of the sixties and the seventies, because that's an argument that's made as well. An argument about the fact that these are these you know these revolutions do not carry mass battery charges like the sixties and seventies revolutions. So there is a way in which again I'm, I was interested in reappropriating that that history. I mean, concerning your own work, you know, about uh, the disappeared, I think the, the question of haunting there is a, takes a much, much more, you know, takes much, much more important, significant space in thinking about the return of the repressed, basically. That which the re- regime seeks to has sought to repress. You know, I'm I'm of a particular generation that sort of like remembers the early 1990s debates that were have that were being held in Beirut about the question of memory and how to think about the memory of the civil war and and the memory of the city. In part, you know, in opposition to the project of Solidaire. but there the question of the question of haunting, the question of repression that, and the question of that will become the return of the repressed later on, I think is a different register than the one I was working, I was working in, but I would need to think more about it.
0: No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And yeah, there are, there are intersections, but they're not necessarily the same. And, um, Dwelling too much on the comparisons can sometimes flat, risk flattening them as well. Uh, I'm, you mentioned the second essay, and it's it's what I wanted to ask you next because the title is uh, "Critical Theory in a Minor Key to Take Stock of the Syrian Revolution." You already talked a bit about that, so just feel, feel free to expand on what you already said if you want. But why did you? Why did you? What did you mean by "in a minor key," and? How does it relate to? How does critical? Like, yeah, I'm gonna ask it very broadly. Like, how does critical theory relate to the Syrian revolution?
1: I mean, the two essays are connected, even though the the second one is is less of a public intervention and more more of an attempt to think the question of politics of representation, visibility, and solidarity not on the level of uh, deployment exclusively on the level of deployment of ideological discourses but of thinking about the domains of operation of critical theory like what does how how and where does critical theory operate and in doing that what risks for example are incurred in rendering certain struggles invisible for example because not because of uh, ideological uh, motives, but because the way in which these critical contraptions work operate on different terrains. Let me explain what what I had in mind practically in that essay. I mean, first I was thinking about... In the first part, I was really thinking about how there are certain... Ideological propositions that become that start acting like first principles for for some segments of the left, like anti-imperialism or secularism. And and I what I was after was basically doing a dialectical move, whereby I say that what started out as something that has an emancipatory charge, like being an anti-imperialist or being a secular in a very different context, in a very, very different setting, could basically be transformed into, you know, either an instrument for a regime or as a, a first principle that erases or renders invisible struggles on the ground. So it was a call not to transform these first principles into like metaphysical sort of like ahistorical universals that are supposed to apply anywhere and everywhere. So. Secular, always good. Religious, always bad. anti imperialist always good. You know, if not anti imperialist therefore, therefore bad. And we talked a bit about that in the first essay, but really I was really after trying to actually capture that these concepts have a particular history and they could be appropriated for different ends and purposes. So there's a call, a call for basically being alert to how they're deployed, by whom, when, and how that deployment may shift their valences. But the second point was more about critical theory. And the reason why the title is critical theory in a minor key, because what I was afraid of is that the big critical theories, that big concepts, for example, like like neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. Sometimes sort of like because they have such strong subsumptive sub you know powers they risk erasing the struggles of men and women on the ground by basically taking these like sort of very 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 sort of like bird's eye view of things i mean the argument i make in that essay was uh, I, you know an argument that is critical of a very seasoned you know acad- academic observer of arab politics asif bayat where he says that you know uh, revolutionaries something to the effect in his uh, book revolution without revolutionaries that the revolutionaries were all sort of like whether they're islamists or secularists he says they were all sort of like conditioned by a neoliberal climate and and my qualms with that is you know, sort of like the behaviorist languages of like being conditioned, but also it's a very, very big blanket sort of like assertions. so again, this was a this was a sort of call to basically be careful about how. A particular critical theory on the left, which is the critique of neoliberalism, so to speak, can become this very capacious concept that actually renders the struggles of people on the ground invisible in a supposedly critical vein. I'm not saying, of course, I'm not saying one should not be and cannot be critical of what's happening. But I'm I'm talking about what is the critical distance you take from people and what is the positionality you inhabit? You know, when you say that everyone was conditioned by a neoliberal climate, therefore the sort of like emancipatory charges or the radical progressive charges of these revolutions was sapped, there's a big, there's a big risk here, I think, in erasure, in invisibility, in uh, not sort of like being doing a fine-tuned analysis of even a critical analysis of the composition of revolutionaries. So, so ideological first principles like secularism and anti-imperialism, uh, big sort of critical theories like the critique of neoliberalism, et cetera, when applied have have risks. And what I was after is to sort of say that, you know, and a critical theoretical practice that's closer to the pulse of people on the ground is, is more helpful in elaborating a conceptual approach. Because if critical theory is the name of a theory that's interested in the question of emancipation, which is how its original sort of, you know, at least in Horkheimer's kind of definition, then, then basically having these having these big, big concepts that sort of like subsume everyone under their logics of operation uh, carries, a, ca- carries a lot of risks.
0: One thing that, for example, I remember, or I still think about like the, the accusations that I didn't hear, I didn't see them at the time because I wasn't really looking for them, but it's something that I read later on of like, he basically like almost like the, let's say the Syrian revolution as if it had to take a number of boxes before being seen as valid enough and even more recently like the, the one in Hong Kong the 2019 uprising which happened around it was before then but it, it escalated you might say around the same time as the uprisings in Lebanon and Iraq and Iraq so we we saw and I was part of these conversations like looking at uh, parallels and obviously lots of contrasts as well but the Hong Kong ones you know famously were infamously Uh, included some people who were waving the american flag for example and that sort of thing even like pro-trump stuff uh, from time to time as if the the existence of a of those of as if the presence of those people negates uh what let's say the majority were thinking and negates the cause itself or negates the the otherwise legitimate it's as if I can imagine the person engaging in that rhetoric and that discourse. I should say, dismissing those protesters in Hong Kong. They do a number of things. They a they erase everyone else. So the people who are not waving those American flags, blah blah blah. But the other thing is that they prioritize the waving of that flag. And here I'm being very visual on purpose. It was a minority anyway, but it was visual. It was very visible. It was very obvious in many ways. They were not, which is on purpose, of course. It was a part of a publicity stunt, I should say, to gain attention on themselves, those people themselves who are waving those flags. And the UK flag, I should say, as well, the Union Jack at some point. But it erases erases everyone else. And at the same time, it says that now that those flags were raised, nothing that has happened before is valid anymore. Uh, The underlying problems are no longer worth analyzing. They're no longer worth engaging with. Uh, which effectively what it does is give a uh carte blanche essentially to the forces seeking to repress them. And I'm not me I, I don't mean this literally in the sense that if you tweet something you're responsible for what the CCP does. Obviously not. The you know, I'm not gonna I'm gonna I'm not gonna go that far. But it's sort of it becomes part of this uh Um how would I say this? Yeah, it just become if, if the CCP and here I'm using the Hong Kong example just to kind of continue on this example, had a number of tactics of like PR tactics, erasing those other Hong Kongers, erasing the majority, erasing the cause, erasing the, the, fund, the underlying uh, principles, you might say, or the, the, the inherent justness of that cause, you might say, inadvertently participates in those PR efforts of the CCP. And you, know, you, be, you become a useful idiot, as that term would be. And I know that term was used in other contexts in ways that I would disagree with, but I'm just using it in this context. And this is this is something that I've definitely seen again repeated in different ways, from the Bosnian context to the uh, Hong Kong context to the Syrian context to other contexts, Libya context for that matter, and so on and so forth. We can, and I, I don't even know enough context, but I'm sure there are other examples as well. And those comparisons is sort of what I wanted us to. Um, Wrap up this conversation before getting into the book section, because the first time I had you on, uh, which is episode fourteen for those listening, so that was in the early phases of the podcast. I would say like almost two years now. Um, we spoke about, as you mentioned in your introduction, this the Arab New Left as it was called in the sixties, the Lebanese and Arab New Left in sixties. Given that you were kind of focusing on the. The, the, well, the praxis, the what they were doing, but also what they were saying, the discourses, the rhetoric, and so on. Is there any kind of, and I'm not saying there's a direct comparison, but is there anything that from that research informed you in thinking about the scene revolution? Because that, that's what I would be very curious to hear about.
1: So the question of the politics of invisibility and solidarity, again, the setting is very different. And I'm saying the setting is very different because back then, we are in the heat in the in the heart of the third worldist moment. So there were basically metropolitan solidarities. This is not the moment of Caesar in the fifties. This is the moment of the sixties and seventies and the third world. So there were basically extension of solidarity. So the Palestinians were the outliers, and they're trying to think about their question of invisibility. So different conjuncture, but the question of politics of representation and its relation, it's not only an epistemic question, it's a political question because it basically is related to the question of political solidarity. Like how do you, you know, how do you sort of, you know, that was one thing that was in that archive that one, one, one sort of uh, thinks of. The other one, which was basically a very old staple of uh, post-colonial regime is uh, trying to excommunicate uh, revolutionaries and dissidents from the domain of legitimate politics by accusations of treason. Mm -hmm. So the idea of the Rise, You know, those who rise against their regimes, those who uh, speak up are agents of foreign powers. This is a second point. I'm thinking with you here on the spot. A third point, which is very old, and people are not aware of how old that is, is... Uh, using the Palestinian question by the regimes as the main contradiction to quiet internal opposition to the regimes. So thinking of using, in a nutshell, using the Arab-Israeli conflict as a very a legitimizing tool that basically enables internal crackdown on dissidents. So, so these are things, but of course the the brutality and ruthlessness of of the Assad dynastic regime is you know, not comparable to the kind of archive I worked with in in Lebanon. But, but there are certain tropes, again, the tropes about the relationship of, you know, representation to solidarity in the case of the Palestinians, the trope of instrumental usage of the question of Palestine, the question of tagging, Every dissident, opposition, rebel, revolutionary as an as a foreign agent that were used by the regime in Syria, and that were used by the regime in Lebanon, which is again not comparable to the one in Syria in the wake of 219. These have histories, and this these histories, these histories you can, you know, you can sort of detect them in, in that older archive, even though, again, as I mentioned, that geopolitical configuration was very different. It was a third world this moment the Soviet Union was there. But there are very interesting tropes to think about, whether fr- whether as a conundrum from the side of the revolutionaries or as counter-revolutionary sort of like discursive tropes from the, le- from, from the perspective of the regimes. It's worth th- thinking about how old, you know, and how these recycle themselves.
0: It's definitely a kind of like an open question in many ways but i think it's very relevant because as you of course know the some of those tropes that were recycled in 2019 in lebanon uh used syrians to recycle those tropes they were literally saying stuff like syrians as being the outside agitators again like that trope which like for in the context of the west for example that there, there's in those outside agitators and here i'm referencing a conversation i had on Uh, jewish diasporist politics a few a few days ago this whole trope of the outside agitator being either an anarchist or a jewish anarchist specifically have all of these intersections with anti-semitism in the west in the context of lebanon or syria for that matter but since i want to sort of wrap it up on lebanon what happened like we had everything from the wildfires being uh which preceded the uprising being uh blamed on syrians who were accused of either uh, doing them or moving into, you know, freed Lebanese homes or what have you. Or, in I remember, for example, when there were protests in Tripoli, there were these headlines on OTV, which is this, F, uh, gov- for those who don't know, like a very pro-government outlet, I'll just describe it like that, uh, basically saying like Syrians are, are coming from Idlib to participate in, because Idlib was in the news back then. participate in the uprising in lebanon so we saw we saw these whole tropes being repeated i'm just mentioning that to say or to highlight the fact that the details can change like the the you you might say like there's a trope and there's insert here and the insert here can change but the underlying logic remains more or less the same and so this is kind of what i wanted to to say Mm -hmm. um to to yeah to kind of wind us down. What what are three books that you would recommend to our audience and why those three?
1: Well, I'm uh, actually I'm in the, uh, I'm in the middle of reading three books now, so I, I will recommend them because they're since we're talking about uh, the the Syrian revolution, and I'm literally in the middle of I'm reading them you know quasi in parallel with as much as like my time permits be- between teaching and other things, and. And part of the reason why I'm reading them in, t- in parallel is because they're they're also recent, more, more or less, books. They were published in the last uh, year or two, I think. Wh- wh- one of them is uh, The Syrian Revolution Between the Politics of Life and the Geopolitics of Death by Yasser Munif. Uh, the second is uh, Yasin al-Hajj Saleh I think his, his most recent book it's called Al-Fadhi'a wa Tamthilu Mudawalat fi surya al-mukharrab wa tashakulaha al-asir I'm not sure if this uh, book was is translated into English yet. It's a book that was published last year from Darish Jadid. I mean, the first part of the title could be you know translated as uh, The Horrific and Its Representation and it's an attempt of like Really, coming, digging deeper, the question of the form, like what kind of meaning can you bestow the forms that you sort of can sort of through which you can understand the Syrian experience and the horror at the heart of basically the regime practice. And the third book is uh, "Readings in Syrian Prison Literature: The Poetics of Human Rights" by uh, Sharia Taleghani.
0: Mm-hmm. I had Sharia on a few weeks ago. We talked about oh, it. okay,
1: interesting. Yeah. So these are these are. I mean, I'm. I'm recommending them because I'm in the middle of reading them. So it's not because I'm like an authority on the matter. And so, and they're also very recent books that I'm sort of reading, reading in parallel. So, so yeah, that I, I would, yeah, maybe, you know, maybe our listeners would be interested in checking out some recent books in Arabic and in English about trying to make sense of uh, the Syrian revolution. Yeah.
0: Amazing. Uh, Fadi, as always, it's been good to have you. Thanks a lot for your time and, and for this conversation.
1: Thank you, Joey, again for having me for the second time and coming here.
0: The Fadi's Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayoub. I am also its producer, researcher, writer and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash fire these times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.